Good. Great. That was good. Cool. Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is Ian Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. this month's best case ever, we have Dr. Rob Samard. He's an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and North York General Hospital. He's one of the few ED docs who's completed a point-of-care ultrasound fellowship in Canada. He's an ultrasound educator extraordinaire and a medical director for ACLS and PALS. So Rob, let it rip. Let's hear your best case ever. My best case ever starts off at the Janus General Community Hospital. I am giving the heads up about a four-month-old boy who's coming into the emergency department with CPR ongoing. Whoa, CPR ongoing, four-month-old, sphincter tightening. All right, what happened? I'm giving the heads up that they're two minutes away, and I'm starting to think, okay, how am I going to prepare for this child when this child arrives So I start preparing the room. I get the usual stuff. We have our crash cart. I make sure we have the proper pediatric sizes of our airway equipment, our pediatric equipment. We have our bras low tape. I start to uh, consider getting the epinephrine ready and on board. And I get all the right people that I want there. My pediatrician, my pediatric nurses, my RT, my eMERGE nurses, and get the room set up in preparation for this child to arrive. Okay, preparation is so important. Um, Rob, how did you get your medications ready? Yes, you can imagine with a four-month-old using that box cardiac epi, there's a lot of medication there. And to give less than a milliliter from that from that syringe, it's very, very difficult. So what I do is I get our tuberculin syringes because in the four-month-old, you're going to be giving less than a milliliter of this epinephrine. So I get our tuberculin syringes, which is only one, mil- one milliliter in total, and I get a three-way stopcock. And I attach the three-way stopcock to the epinephrine syringe, our cardiac epinephrine syringe. And then to the other port, I add the tuberculin syringe and I put in less than a milliliter of epinephrine to get everything prepared in case we need to administer it. And I prepare three of those. So I have three tuberculin syringes with a milliliter of epinephrine in it to give to our patient at the right dose once we get the corrected age. Yeah, that actually reminds me of this study that I just read out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine, where it was a simulation-based study looking at whether color-coded pre-filled medication syringes would make a difference in terms of dosing error and time to delivery of the medications. Have you heard of this this paper? Yeah, I've heard of this paper. I think it's a great idea, especially given that everything's becoming more protocolized now and much easier to deliver. I can tell you when I'm on my third night shift in a row, doing math in my head is extremely difficult. So doing math from a child's age to how much epinephrine can give, if I'm off by a factor of 10, I can give a devastating dose of medication to a child. So having any of these protocolized syringes to help me give a medication makes things much, much easier, especially when you're tired. Yeah, cool. Yeah, this study was amazing. We'll have on the website, we'll have some pictures of what it looks like, but basically they filled up syringes uh, with epinephrine, for example, and with all the other resuscitation medications. And then on the syringe, they have different colors for the different weights of the the child. Um, And so when the child comes in, they use the Braslow tape to know which color they're at. 
Then they push the medication up to the same color marked on the syringe. And so it removes all that calculation that you don't have the time or the mental energy to be doing in the middle of a resuscitation. We're in the resuscitation room. You've done all your preparation. You've got this four-month-old boy, cardiac arrest in CPR. Everyone's sweating. What happened next? I've made the priorities for the child to get uh, IO access, we called for our IO drill, for the child to be placed on the monitor and the defibrillator to find out what rhythm they were in, and also to ensure high-quality CPR was ongoing. When we attached the child to the monitor, we found out that the child was in ventricular fibrillation. Whoa, wait, hold, hold on there. Ventricular fibrillation in a four-month-old boy? Yeah, so in this case, this child's in a ventricular fibr- fibrillation and cardiac arrest, and my pediatrician who's in the room now at this point tells me that in 20 years of practice, she had never seen a child this age in ventricular fibrillation. Wow, okay, so I guess you pulled out the pads and shocked the patient? So on go the defibrillation pads, we charged our machine to two joules per kilogram and gave a defibrillation dose of two joules per kilogram to the child. And we continued two minutes of high quality CPR. And luckily, after the two minutes of CPR, the pediatrician felt for a pulse and we had a pulse back. So we actually obtained a ROSC at this point. Wow. Okay. So we've got a V-fibres in a four-month-old. You've got return of spontaneous circulation. Now you're into your post-resuscitation care. I can't remember the last time I even contemplated post-resuscitation care in a four-month-old. How did you do that part? So I'm thinking, all right, let's secure the airway. Let's worry about circulation and blood pressure. Let's get some ancillary testings like our ECG and our chest X-ray. And let's start thinking about cooling this child. So I'm going through your post-resuscitation care checklist. And while I'm thinking through that, our pediatrician, who had fought for the pulse, yells out, can we immediately call for this patient to be transferred? And I'm thinking in my head, wow, like that's really early. Like we, the child just arrived here. We've just defibrillated the child and now we're already calling for transport. We don't even have our vital signs yet. We don't have anything. So at this point, I'm thinking maybe that's, that's early. But in retrospect, this was probably one of the biggest learning points that I had is that calling for transport early in this case was absolutely the right thing to do. And I was very grateful for her to suggest that at that point. So while we're calling for the transport team, we get a set of vitals on this patient and we find out that the heart rate's in sinus rhythm at 128 beats per minute. The patient's blood pressure is 100 over 60 and the oxygen saturation at this point is about 95% and that's intubated now with high flow oxygen going through the endotracheal tube. And I'm taken out of the room because our transport team service is on the phone and I step out to talk to them. So now I'm at the resuscitation desk. I'm looking at the child's monitor and I'm on the phone with the resuscitation team. And I speak to the pediatric ICU fellow and ICU staff at our tertiary pediatric center in our region. And I'm reviewing the case with them. So what should be noted about the case is in the time frame of after we got our pulse back and we were stabilizing the patient, I did have a chance to speak to the mom and dad who arrived in the hospital. This is how the story started out. This is a otherwise healthy four-month-year-old. Mom had two normal ultrasounds, normal delivery, immunizations are up to date, and the only time the child's ever seen a doctor was for normal well-baby exams, has never been to a hospital before, has never required care, has never been on any medication before. This is a completely normal, healthy child, and even described today as being very playful at the park, smiling, and eating and drinking very well. Mom put the child down for the nighttime sleep, and noted everything was fine at that time. 
But shortly afterwards, when she went to check on the child, she noted that the child was breathing differently than usual. And when paramedics arrived, they described agonal breathing to me and shortly afterwards stopped breathing altogether. When I told the pediatric ICU doctors these, this story and that the child was in V-fib rest, they were really questioning me whether or not the child was truly in V-fib rest because it's such a rare thing for a child to be in. And they were really questioning, is this V-fib or not? So at this point, I offered to take a picture of the rhythm to send to the doctors in order to confirm that it's V-fib rest. Well, good for you for holding your guns, you know. Sometimes in emergency medicine, we're speaking to someone who we perceive might be more knowledgeable than us in a particular situation. And sometimes we, we won't trust our gut instinct and let the specialist on the other side of the phone who hasn't even seen the patient kind of tell us what's right and what's wrong. Um, so good for you for sticking to your guns. And then not only that, Anton, but while I'm giving the information and trying to get the, the rhythm to send over, as I'm looking on the monitor out by the recess uh, desk, I notice that the rhythm starting to change. It's going from this sinus rhythm into this wide complex rhythm, and it's going wide regular at 225 beats per minute. So I tell the doctors on the phone that the child's now in VTAC, and I hang up the phone and run back into the room. And I see the team still trying to troubleshoot the airway with the O2 sat. And I, I, I tell them that the rhythm's now changing and for them to feel for a pulse. So we have VTAC on the monitor and the pediatrician's confirmed in the room that the child still does have a pulse. So we get prepared to do a synchronized cardioversion and we cardiovert the child at one joule per kilogram. And we now have the child back in a normal sinus rhythm, same rate at about 120 beats per minute. And the blood pressure is still 100 over 60. Still, though, the oxygen saturation is not as good. It's It's been steadily declining, and they update me that the oxygen saturation has now in the 89 to 90% range, despite the endotracheal tube in place on the x-ray, and despite um, them suctioning the tube and looking for any signs of obstruction or equipment damage in this case. Child's oxygen saturation is now 87%, and I noticed that there's a needle brought into the room out of its wrapper, and they're getting ready to needle decompress the child. In this case, the child's oxygen saturation is 87%. The child is not, is not ventilating well on our ventilator. And the thought on needle decompressing the child is that with CPR, there's a possibility we might have fractured some ribs and that this child has punctured a lung and now has a pneumothorax with this positive pressure ventilation. It might be a tension pneumo. Reasonable thought. Absolutely. So in this case, seen, freshly seeing the x-ray, the x-ray shows a very large heart. And I'm concerned that, you know, with this very large heart, if we should not do a quick ultrasound to confirm if there's a pneumothorax there or not before we needle decompress. The pediatrician says, I don't hear any breath sounds on that left, on that left side. And I'm wondering if it's because there's no lung to hear because the heart's pushing the lung out of the way. So they told me that they already looked with ultrasound and see no lung sliding on that side. And they take the probe out again to show me. And when they do, there is no lung sliding on the left side, but only because they're ultrasounding in the area where the heart's beating and there's no lung there because the heart's pushing the lung out of the way. The normal area where we would normally look for pneumothorax is where the heart is and the heart's pushing lung out of the way. So I push the person who's doing the ultrasound's hand to the apex of the lung and only at the apex of the lung are we actually seeing lung sliding. So in fact, this child doesn't have a pneumothorax. It's just where we would normally check for pneumothorax. There's heart there because the heart is very large. So you're looking with your ultrasound where you normally would look in an adult or, or most children, you're looking where you normally see lung sliding, and that's over where the heart is. But in this kid, his heart was so large that it actually pushed the lung out of the way so that you couldn't see any lung. 
Absolutely. So in this case, the normal place where I would look for a pneumothorax, the child's heart was so big, it was actually in that area and pushing where lung should be out of the way. So there was no lung sliding in that area. And unfortunately, the only place that we did see lung sliding was in the apex of the, of the chest where there was lung visible. Wow. So POCUS really saved the day. I mean, they would have put the needle right into the heart. Very possible that if they did needle decompress the child where they weren't seeing lung sliding, that they would have put the needle right into the heart and that would have just ended up in bad complications. Ouch. All Absolutely. right. So so you saved the day there for not putting the needle straight into the heart. Uh, what happened next? So at this point, we've made a decision that we're going to continue to just ventilate the child and not to do the needle decompression. And our transport team started to arrive. And, and during this time, the child now started to have seizures. So the blood sugar was done and it was 4.8. We started doing the usual seizure medications with benzos loading on phosphenatoin. And in this case, the seizures did terminate. When the transport team did arrive and they see this child who's recently been both defibrillated and cardioverted and now intubated and getting seizure medications, they indicated that they need to speak to their base hospital physician to sort out what medications were going to be needed on transport. And they wanted to be prepared for everything. As you can imagine, with the pediatrician in the room and the pediatrician that I called on the phone at the referring hospital saying that VFib's a rare diagnosis in this case, they wanted to be prepared for anything en route. So they wanted us to prepare medications for another arrest. They wanted to prepare medications for any possibility of anything happening along the way. Well, so that must have taken like forever. It, at least it f- probably felt like it was taking forever because you just wanted to get the patient out of your department. So it's a good thing that uh, the pediatrician who was in the room with you at the time of the arrest called that transport team early. Absolutely. One of the biggest learning points was that early call got them there early. Therefore, they needed to be there for a period of time to arrange all those medications. So if we would have called them later in the game, they still would have needed to go through all that. And it would have been a longer time for this patient to be away from the center where they can receive the definitive care. Okay. So this child got transported to the tertiary care center. What was the outcome? So when the child got brought there, the paramedics actually had come back later that day to tell us all the results. So we were lucky enough to find out right away what happened. They indicated that when the child was transported from the paramedic stretcher to the um, ICU bed, that a cardiologist was already there ready with ultrasound probe in hand. And they did a bedside echo and confirmed that this child had a right ventricle tumor. And it was one of the rare tumors that grows very quickly. So you can imagine why... This child went from being very healthy one minute and becoming every parent's worst nightmare and all of a sudden going from healthy one minute to requiring CPR. And in this case, the the type of tumor that this child had was a quickly growing tumor and uh, preparations were being made for the child to get a heart transplant. So the boy ended up getting a heart transplant. How's the kid doing now? So the child was able to be discharged from the hospital after receiving their heart transplant And the child did come back to our site for some multiple concerns that they had medically, but there were just minor concerns and we were able to treat them here at our site. And it was great to see the family come back to the emergency department and having that opportunity to see how grateful the family was and that emotional feeling that you get to be thanked for a job well done in this case. And it's one of those gratifying moments in emergency medicine that we rarely get a chance to follow through on and see and follow up. Wow. That's the real reason we do emergency medicine. That must have felt so great. So Rob, can you just summarize for our listeners your big learning points, what you learned from this case? 
So a few of the learning points from this case, number one, making sure when you have that pediatric rush that comes in or any of the pediatric patients who come in that are critically ill to ensure that you prepare well for them, especially if you're giving the heads up like I was given in this case that someone's coming in to ensure you have all the right personnel there, all the right equipment there. And that trick about how to fill, to fill the epinephrine syringes, just to have them ready, that can take some time during a recess and to do that ahead of time. Anything you can do ahead of time in preparation is very helpful. Learning point number two for me was the early activation of our transport service. In this case, had we spent more time stabilizing the patient, which took a long time to stabilize the oxygen saturation. In fact, in this case, because it was a primary cardiac concern, there was a good possibility that we wouldn't have ever got that oxygen saturation elevated and staying more at this at our center we could have potentially done harmful things like started to think too much and then start to do invasive things that might have been more harmful so the earlier we activated it the sooner we were able to have our child transported to the site of definitive care so in this case it worked out really well that we called for early transport and finally the third learning point in this case is the utility of POCUS when confirming whether or not someone has a pneumothorax In this case, had POCUS not readily been available, it is extremely likely that this child would have been needle decompressed and it's possible that the needle decompression would have actually gone into the heart. I might even go as far as to say that if you have an ultrasound machine readily available in your recess room and you're contemplating needle decompressing a patient, that taking the time to confirm a pneumothorax may be quite helpful in terms of confirming your suspicion versus confirming there is no pneumothorax there to prevent an invasive procedure. Now, obviously, if the child or the patient is that sick that there are obviously signs of tension pneumothorax and you have just a few seconds to prevent a cardiac arrest, then by all means, you're going to go and do what you would do clinically, which is you're going to needle decompress based on the clinical pneumothorax. But in the case of the differential being a pneumothorax, if you have that ultrasound machine available, you can easily do a POCUS for those of you who are ultrasound savvy and confirm or deny whether or not a pneumothorax exists. Because if there's no pneumothorax, there's no tension pneumothorax. One other thing that I like to do at all my resuscitations, regardless if it's that expected death in the emergency department or the very unexpected, like in this case, is all the people that were involved in the resuscitation. I like to take a few minutes afterwards and go through a a debrief with them. The debrief doesn't have to be anything specific. It can just be asking what went well, what didn't go well, and find out if there was anything that people would would want differently done, differently prepared for in retrospect after the arrest occurred. In this case, a few things did pop up. We were lucky enough in this case to have our pediatric and NICU nurses from the floor come down to help us. And we were able to establish IO access in this case, but in, in terms of establishing IV access, which we got after we started stabilizing the child more, it turned out that our IVs that we were using in our emergency department, we didn't have the proper sized catheters for this size of a child. So with the help of our our pediatric nurses, they discussed with our eMERGE nurses, and we were able to stock the right catheters for IV insertions for further cases. Also with the debrief in a, a very emotional case like this, where Many of our healthcare professionals have children and children this age and seeing a family have to go through this. It's very emotional. And and, uh, just to remind our healthcare professionals of the resources that we have available for coping with these types of situations where we have resources through 
our medical bodies, like our medical associations that we subscribe to, our nursing associations that we that are subscribed to, that we have, and our hospital resources as well to rely on coping with tragic or emotional situations that arise. Because you don't want someone to go home with unanswered questions or unanswered uh, feelings. You want to be able to provide an environment where people can discuss openly about how they felt things went, how they feel personally, and be able to provide that support or direct them to where support can be provided if need be in these situations. So we had a good debrief where everyone had their chance to say um, how they felt about the case, how they felt personally, and any support that was needed for people was provided. And we touched base later on too to make sure that everyone had their opportunity to reach out and to seek any care that they needed to seek or to discuss how they felt about things as things went on.